Please be seated and join me in a word of prayer for our passage today. Gracious Lord, we've been called into your presence. We have sung your praises. We have confessed our failings. We have given you the gifts that are just a small measure of what you truly deserve. And, Father, we come to your word anxious to hear, knowing that it's only by your Spirit's power that we can hear well, and it's only by your Spirit's help that we can actually apply what we've heard. So would you be with this weak vessel as I preach today? Be with us as we interpret our passage, illuminate our hearts as the Spirit would have us interpret this passage. We ask this all in Jesus' name for the sake of your glory. Amen. All right, friends, our passage for consideration uh, is going to be 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. But I'm actually going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 3. I believe it's on page 1016 of your pew Bible. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11, we'll pick up from verse 18, which says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking." Who has, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the grass withers, but the flowers fade. 
but this, the word of our God, actually stands forever. And perhaps you're just joining us on our study of 1 Peter. We've kind of been all over the place with guest pastors and uh, the pastors uh, Davis and, and Pastor Knox and myself preaching. But uh, we return to that study this morning with the study of 1 Peter 4. And I thought as, as Peter is articulating how they're to respond in the midst of their suffering, he's telling them this is actually the way that you suffer. You know, perhaps you've seen the show that's really popular on the Disney Channel. It's in my house. It is in my house, at least the Mandalorian. It's known for his famous tagline, this is the way, right? And uh, you find out about the Mandalorian that what he's actually referencing is a code of traditions and ideals in his society of the Mandalore, in which he was raised. They have a special code that they follow, like they don't take their helmets off in front of people ever, and if they do, it's a sin, they have to atone for it. They believe that the, the weakest among them, the foundlings as they call them, are the future of their society, and so they either welcome them into that society or they uh, take them back to their own people to protect them. And as the show progresses, the Mandalorian, uh, he, he re- uses this tagline in several places. Uh, and it's just this sort of characteristic attitude that he's known for. But what's really interesting is as he goes into various places throughout the universe, he's sort of looked with condescension on this is the way. He even knows other Mandalore, people from his home planet, that take his interpretation of this is the way, the ideals he's supposed to follow as heretical, sort of like fundamentalist, if you will, uh, and he's sort of this member of this extreme sect. And uh, that's not too uncommon, what not too unfamiliar with what Peter's actually doing to suffering people in this passage. He's laying for them, laying out for them what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus in the midst of their suffering. Because perhaps you remember they have been facing severe persecution and oppression from the state, from probably members of their own community, from various places and times that they've found themselves in. And Peter's been writing to this crowd of people who are suffering. He's, he's going to show them what it actually looks like to change the world even as they suffer. Because he wants us to know when God's people embrace the way of the suffering one, we will suffer in light of his coming day and endure by his kingdom etiquette even in a hostile age. Peter wants us to know That when we embrace the way of the suffering one, we will suffer in light of his coming day and embrace his kingdom etiquette, his enduring etiquette, even in the midst of a hostile age. Because there's three things he wants us to see in this passage. Peter has three things he's trying to tell us. He's trying to build their suffering on the plumb line of the one who has suffered Jesus. So he's pointing out the way. Of Jesus. Then he's going to tell them to suffer in light of the coming day. He's pointing out the day that they're supposed to suffer in light of. And then he's finally going to tell them how to endure in a hostile age. 
So the way, the day, and enduring in a hostile age. I worked really hard on that alliteration. I know it may not make the most sense, but I hope it will. And hopefully you'll see it as we come through. So picking back up in the context of our passage, I read from chapter 3, verse 18, because Peter has just referenced this suffering one. And throughout his epistle, he's referred to his audience as sojourners and exiles. Peter's famous for his Old Testament allusions and language that he picks up. He uh, so sojourners and exiles in the Old Testament, they were, a sojourner was one who lives in a place who's not home, not their native land. And exiles are resident foreigners. And uh, Bill Barclay says that this identity as a resident alien forms much of how Peter says people are supposed to live in this world. There was lots of risk to being a sojourner in the ancient societies in which sojourners existed. They didn't have the rights of citizens. They they uh, were easily taken advantage of. They were often exploited by those who were in power. Uh, they were looked upon with disdain. And if you go trace the trajectory of our sermons that we've been following, Peter has been trying to tell his people throughout chapter 2 and 3 that they're supposed to be submissive sojourners. They're supposed to submit to the authorities. They're not supposed to set themselves in stubborn opposition to those in power. And in the land where God has placed them. But midway through that section, Peter actually begins to push the envelope of how far submission goes. And he says, submission even goes as far as suffering for the sake of the name. He calls them to be sojourners who willingly suffer even as they submit. And he repeatedly references the examples of Jesus. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, that uh, Jesus set this example for them, that for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the section immediately preceding this, he's been telling them how to rebuke evil by not engaging in evil. He's been telling them how to live as God's blessed one in a world that does not honor God's wisdom, even if it means enduring evil. But then he gets to chapter 4, and he he says this turn of phrase in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And it makes you wonder, like, Peter, what... What are you reading now? Because you've literally been telling us to be nonviolent and how we endure suffering submissively. So what could he mean? The, the word means in the original language is equip yourself, equip yourself, but it's used in military sort of settings to refer to the fact that uh, it means arm yourself. He's saying that what you actually need to do, it's not enough that you just think I need to avoid the patterns of behavior of the wicked people under whose authority I am. He's saying the same mindset that belonged to Jesus is the way that you arm yourself to endure even when you suffer. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the characteristic way that Jesus thought? You think of Mark 10, 45. Why did Jesus say he came into this world? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Philippians 2 is a phenomenal reference to what the thought of Jesus essentially was. Who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be desperately grasped onto as if it was passing through his hands, but to think of others and to suffer even to the point of death in the context in which he served as the Son of God. In other words, Jesus thought that courageous meekness becomes the way to relate to a hostile world, even when it means voluntary sacrifice. That sounds kind of fanatical, doesn't it? Well, friends, that's what the gospel is. It's the Son of God who has every right to insist upon the heads of the people who harm him, laying his rights down in a hostile world so that he might bring life to his enemies. Because overcoming evil requires not just refraining from evil, Overcoming evil in a hostile age requires doing good. This meekness is something Jesus himself manifested. It's a meekness that can look out on a world even as it crucifies him and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But it's also reflected the courageous trust of the Lord to his Father for how God recognized that he would eventually vindicate him. That's why Peter, in, in the myriad of interpretations of the passage immediately following, references the suffering death of Jesus for sins. And then he says, he has been raised to new life, gone into heaven, and is actually at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Because Jesus knew that even as he suffered, he was following the plan of his Father. And even if it meant cost to himself, it would lead to his eternal and final vindication in the court of heaven. And Peter is saying, arm yourselves with this mentality because he knows He knows our tendency in the face of oppressive evil, doesn't he? In the face of people who would want to abuse and harm us, he knows our tendency. He knows our human hearts. We want to hit back at a world that strikes out at us. We want to revile in the face of being reviled, as Peter has just told them not to in the previous chapter. And Peter himself manifests this tendency that When you are threatened, you're supposed to take might and insist upon the might that leads to right. As he took the sword that he was wearing and he chopped off the high priest's servant Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to betray him. And Jesus says, this is not the way that my kingdom followers are supposed to live. You're to arm yourselves with the fact that meekness is not weakness. Courageous meekness that leads to voluntary sacrifice will be vindicated in the courts of heaven, even in the face of a world that rejects you, even in the face of a world that thinks you're just fanatical. In other words, Jesus knows our our tendency that we're so naturally harassed 
by the tyranny of death. That we naturally try to preserve ourselves as a way to keep from dying. But Jesus' life and ministry point out the fact, friends, that the way of the suffering one passes of the art, through the arch of suffering that will always lead to glory and vindication. So that in the face of hostile opposition, you can take great comfort, even if it means if you sacrifice and you don't hit back and you follow the meek way of Jesus. But there's a second thing that, that Peter knows about our hearts. He knows that we can become so anxious about the harm of a hostile world that we actually isolate ourselves from it. We draw lines, and we sort of come up with our own Christian ghettos. We insist upon our own holy conduct standards of what it means to belong to our communities and sort of separate ourselves from the world because Christians are supposed to be in the world but not of it, right? And there's a way that we can take that that Peter is actually going to address later on in this chapter. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to arm themselves with this holy mindset so that they never hospitably engage a hostile world. He wants them to practice arming themselves with the mindset of laying down your rights, even if it costs you everything in the face of a world that will try to take every inch from you. So he's not saying that. He knows that challenge. And a a third challenge is that we can just feel so pressured by the hostility of this world that we compromise the call to holy living. And so Peter is is telling them, arm yourselves with this mindset. Because what he's going to do is he's actually going to address those two later hesitations in our passage. He's going to address the sense of their pressure that they feel from the world when he calls them to holy living in verses 3 to 6. And then he's going to address the enduring etiquette of how you engage a hostile ward hospitably in 7 to 11. And so, so really, but before we get there, we have to say, like, Peter says some really strange things. He, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does he mean by that? That seems contradictory to what the rest of Scripture would say about how we know we've arrived and fought our sin. But what Peter is actually doing is he's saying, you're suffering in the likeness of your Savior, enduring meekness and host- enduring with meekness in the face of hostility, even if it costs you everything, that actually proves that you have bought the thinking of your homeland versus the thinking of the world in which you find yourselves. The world that does insist that might is right. The world that does show, uh, take hit for hit. And no one can expose you. No one can shame you. Because it's your own little kingdom that you have to bear. But what Jesus is saying, or what Peter is saying, uh, what the Spirit of Christ is saying through Jesus, is that to suffer in this way actually shows you are a native of the kingdom of heaven. Because you've already arrived in understanding how you respond to a hostile world. And so 
the function is that he's going to tell them how to suffer in light of the coming day. That's our second point, the coming day. And he's going to tell them in verse 3 through 6, he says, this is why the time that is past suffices. The time in the flesh, uh, you're no longer to live for human passions, but for the will of God. It's a call to holiness, to suffer in a way that does not compromise the conviction that God's people have always been called out to live as a light to a dark world that does not understand his ways and needs examples, living embodied examples of that holiness in a world that's confusing and turns the standards of his holiness upside down. He's saying, avoid these passions of the flesh because the time is short. And why would he say, arm yourselves and then avoid these passions? We'll get to what he's saying with these passions, this sort of call to holiness in just a second. But notice he couches it. He couches it in the phrase of the coming day. He mentions it twice. Verse 2 uh, the rest of the time, uh, verse 3, the time, and he even mentions it. He says, the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. And what Peter is operating out of is what he's just talked about in verse 18 to 22 of chapter 3. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally shifted the way that history is being organized. History is on a fundamental trajectory that's different now. It's got a different arc to it. And it's the arc where all of history is now going to be summed up under the head of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why he says he's been vindicated through his resurrection. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers seated over them because Christians need to know that they're to bring out the holy culture of heaven to which they belong into a hostile world. And this is why the time has passed, because we live in the last days of Jesus coming. Because he's come once in glory. And he said he would come, he came once in suffering, he will come again in glory to fully set right the earth to the way it should be. And so he tells them, he's encouraging them, the rest of the time, this call to holiness, you're now to live like a native of your homeland. And part of the fact of living in a hostile world as a foreigner, anytime you're in a different culture, is that there's, there's clashes that are going to happen with that culture that you're in versus the culture that you're from. And this can happen in funny ways. You know, I know I, was, I used to serve on staff with crew. I knew a woman named Rhonda who served in Eastern Europe in a country that had a Slavic language. Um, she was a missionary there for, I forget how many years, she and her husband. Uh, but she was serving the Lord over there. She couldn't get over the faces that people made whenever she introduced herself to them. She would say, hey, you know, what's your name? And she would get some Eastern European name. She's, they said, what's your name? And she would say, oh, my name is Rhonda. She would try to pronounce it with the local accent so they would understand it better. And people would just like look at her like, okay. It was a very strange interaction. And eventually it happened so much that she asked one of the national staff, she's like, what am I doing wrong? Am I like violating some sort of norm of the culture that I'm in in the way I'm introducing myself? And they said, well, what do you say? just say my name is Rhonda and the staff member started to laugh hilariously 
she said, well, I, I don't understand. <laughs> the staff member who was a part of this Eastern European country told her gently, she said, you are pronouncing your name for the, in the same way that we use the word ugly <laughs> in our own culture. So, so, so it's essentially like she was walking up to people saying, hi, my name is horribly ugly. There's comical ways that living in a different culture can cause uh, change to happen. <laughs> Your name is the word we use as an adjective to say something is horribly ugly. But Peter is saying that this can happen in hostile ways too. And you look at scripture, you look at the story of God's people as they've tried to be faithful exiles throughout the land. It brought to mind my own understanding of Daniel. You go back to Daniel 1 this afternoon and read this story. Uh, Daniel 1, 3 through 8 says this, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What that's referencing is the fact that Babylon, when it conquered people, Old Testament uh, Israelites were, Daniel was a, a privileged youth. He was, he was a noble. He was pulled away into the land of Babylon. And they put them in a culture of assimilation, a program of assimilation that was driven on cultural grounds. He fed them from the king's table. And the chief eunuchs uh, gave them names. He changed their names so that they would live like a Babylonian. Sometimes living as a foreigner in a world that's not your home affects the way you view your identity. And what Peter is calling them to is he knows the effect of a hostile world on suffering people. It's going to make them question their identity. And they're going to feel the pressure to assimilate to the world around them. But then he calls them to holiness by saying, put off those vices of the culture that you're in. Because the time has passed that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It might seem like Peter's drifting into the lane of do's and don'ts, but what he's actually saying is some of the things that are listed in this list, passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, lawless idolatries, it would have been characteristic of vices that Paul uses in the rest of the New Testament, but it also represented a lot of what polytheism did when it worshipped its false deities. And these would have been really acceptable cultural ways for them to engage in the world around them that brought the pressure of an empire onto them. For example, in, in the ancient culture of Rome, uh, idolatry was the way that you paid your allegiance to the state. It was a controversy in the early church that they were required to make sacrifices or to, to purchase a, a stamp of loyalty to the emperor. So that there was incredible pressure for them to engage in the practices of the world around them. But Peter's saying, no, that's not to be the way among God's people. You're not to forget who you are. Because he's just talked about baptism in the previous chapter. You are one with Christ, and even when you're a hostile world, he is with you. And you are to wear your identity as a Christian, even in the unacceptable ways that culture 
would malign you for doing it. Or the acceptable cultural ways. Like this would essentially, the the list that he's got would make Christians seem kind of like prudes. But that's kind of the perception of Christians today, isn't it? Sadly, sometimes our prudishness is not perceived because of our genuine holiness. It's because we have a standard of holiness that may not actually match what's in Scripture. And it's probably too severe, but I think what Peter is calling this group to is genuine holiness that puts off the acceptable norms of the culture around him and rests in the identity that God has given them. And the effect of this in verse 4 is that they're surprised. The culture of his day was literally surprised that they didn't participate. I mean, it's just a little idolatry. It's just a little sacrifice. You could just go purchase a stamp. You could just go pay your loyalties and dues in this way. It's, it's not really, you, you don't really worship the emperor. You see the, the slow drift of cultural assimilation. And in verse 4, it says that they were even maligned, cursed in the original languages is the word. And in the pressures of what they faced, not only was their social approval what was at stake, their social approval came at compromising their call to holiness, and persecution stood behind it. And it makes us wonder, friends, is your holiness a liability for you in our world today? Do people look at you as someone who marches to the tune of a different drum and how you work and what you do and the ways that you relate in your relationships. Peter's calling us to be people who mirror the reality of heavenly good news and hope in our conduct. And we can't compromise that call. We also can't so overstate the categories of what he's saying that we get a really wooden list that's based more on cultural norms than biblical calls to holiness. But it should cause us to ask in your work and in your relationships, are you known for your own kingdom? Or do you view your work as a way God's called you to live out his kingdom and advancing it? In your relationships, are you someone who is willing to endure being maligned just because of your Christian convictions? In all the ways that we might Engage in the world around us. God is calling us to be a special people. And it's incredibly difficult in a culture like ours because so much of our culture's standard of what is appropriate in the Deep South looks kind of Christian. But we have to be uniquely holy and gracious in the way that we embody it. The way we do that is by looking at Jesus. And that's why he brings them to the point to where Even if they face condemnation, it doesn't change the fact that eventually those who condemn them in verse 5 will have to face the judge who awaits them. He's telling them that ultimately they live in light of that coming day because of the Savior who stands and has already set them apart Nothing that they endure that's cursed will actually keep them from being ultimately vindicated. 
And that's how you would interpret verse 6. That's why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead, because some have stood, some have died, some have been holy in a way that set them apart. And it cost them everything. But it doesn't stop our holy Savior from bringing about his ultimate vindication. But that's not all he asked them to do. They're not just to live in light of the coming day. It's not enough just for them to put off evil. They must put on love in the midst of a culture that is confused about what love is. And that brings us to our third point. He gives them an enduring etiquette for the kingdom in a hostile age. He tells them it's the knowledge of that coming day that requires Peter to tell believers how they're to bear witness as sojourners. And he tells them, keep calm, essentially, in verse 8. Above all, uh, keep calm, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter quotes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Because what he's saying is, in the way that you endure, it's not just that you draw lines and you set yourselves apart. You actually have to be thoughtful about how you lovingly engage in the world around you. And love that Christ has shown actually has the power to transform your relationships. Because love that Christ has shown actually allows you to be people who forgive the people who oppress you, the people who harm you and hurt you. And he says, this is the chief priority of you as God's church in this society that that victimizes you for the way that you simply try to set yourself apart. Because if you buy into the lie that might makes right, if you buy into lie that you hit back when you're hit, that you sin against in the ways that you've been sinned against, you actually only spread further dissension and curse. But instead, if you show hospitality to one another without grumbling, to the people who would actually curse you, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be a community that's set apart in the ways that you show welcome. The ways that you love the stranger is what the word actually means in the original language. That's what that word hospitality means. Because ultimately, every person who was a member of God's kingdom in this church that Peter's writing to knew that they were once a stranger. And Jesus calls them to love other strangers that they saw. But to chiefly start in the church, God's body, with the way that they loved people who were estranged. And the ultimate way that they do this is, is by showing the gifts that they have received, using it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks. Whoever serves is one who serves. This is a way that Peter's summarizing all the gifts through the lens of the one who both spoke the truth and served lovingly as he forgave the sin of the people that he served in Jesus Christ. Because the ultimate place that this drives in this passage is to the doxology that Peter stops to sing and to praise about in verse 11. When we set ourselves apart as a community, 
like Christ, who serves and speaks in this way, who is hospitable to strangers, people who should not belong among us. When we forgive as Christ forgave us, you actually bring the kingdom to bear on this world. Don't you see what he's saying? He's saying the way that you actually suffer and arm yourselves with the mindset of Jesus is to take the way down, to move towards those who are estranged from you, to lovingly endure in light of your heavenly hope. And when you do that, you bring glory and dominion to the name of Jesus. Glory and honor and dominion is what he names. You show that this land that actually looks hostile is a heavenly dwelling where Jesus himself is at. Because it's not just enough that we overcome evil by avoiding it. We have to overcome evil by doing good. And in everything, we do this that God may be glorified through Christ, showing his eternal kingdom and how we relate to one another. You may wonder what this actually looks like, but I came across this story this past week. It's written by author Stuart Holden in a book, Prevailing Intercessory Prayer. He tells a story of when he was in Egypt and met a sergeant in a Highland regiment. And he asked him, how were you brought to Christ? He was a bright young Christian, and the, the sergeant replied, he said, there was a private in the same company as myself who had been converted in Malta in North Africa. And I gave him a terrible time. I remember one night in particular when it was very rainy. And he came in wet and weary from his duty as a sentry. But as usual, he still got down on his knees before going to bed. My boots were covered in mud, and instead of cleaning them myself, I cursed him and threw both at him and hit him twice in the head. But he kept kneeling and praying. The next morning when I awoke, I found my boots beautifully cleaned and polished at my bedside. This was his reply to me, and it broke my heart. That day, I was brought to repentance. Because that man saw the kingdom manifest in the meek, courageous suffering of God's people. Friends, that's what he calls us to, and only by his help can we do it. Which is why he says God is the one who gives the strength to endure. So let us ask his help now. As we pray. Father, we live in a world and in a season where our lives are consumed with the desire to want to strike back. We live in a world that treats us as foreigners and strangers, and yet would we be people who would so be changed by the love of our Savior that we can't help but look on the hostile advances of our world, the hostile advances of our own loved ones in the same way that our Savior did as he suffered and endured for the sake of our salvation. May our hearts be so changed by the salvation Jesus has wrought that as we look at him, we are changed to love one another better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.